Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 109 of the Tech Intersect pod. This is April 5th. 2022. And in this episode, I chat with Professor Michelle Neitz about the role of blockchain educators in empowering students, regulators, legislators, and stakeholders about the social good of the technology. And that's really to counter the persistent, misinformed, or at least unbalanced narratives of harm that can lead to even more harmful legal and regulatory outcomes. Professor Neitz is a professor at Golden Gate University School of Law and the founding director of the Blockchain Law for Social Good Center, the first of its kind in the United States. And Professor Neitz was appointed to advise the California legislature as a member of the California Blockchain Working Group in 2019. She researches and lectures on ethical, regulatory, and social impact issues in blockchain technology and published the first law review article examining ethics in blockchain technology in January 2020. Her most recent article entitled How to Regulate Blockchain's Real-Life Applications, Lessons from the California Blockchain Working Group, was published by the peer-reviewed Jurametrics Journal in 2021. Professor Neitz graduated as a Ruth Tilden Scholar from New York University School of Law, Before joining academia, she also clerked in the Southern District of California for Judge Napoleon Jones, and she worked as an Equal Justice Works Fellow at the Legal Aid Society of San Diego, and prior to that was an associate at Morrison and Forrester. We are so very lucky to have a scholar and thought leader like Professor Neitz in the space, and I'm really excited to share our conversation with you. But before we hop into the app, please take a moment to follow this podcast and then like, share, and comment so that others who would benefit from this content can find it. Okay, it's time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode of Tech Intersect, I chat with Professor Michelle Neitz about the Golden Gate University Law School's Blockchain Law for Social Good Center. She is the center's founding director, and it is the first program of its kind at an American law school and will serve as a hub for discussions revolving around blockchain law and new crypto technology applications, as well as how to regulate technologies emerging from that space. She, of course, teaches blockchain in the law, also business associations, legal ethics, and a plethora of other classes. But one of the most impressive feathers in her cap, she's been voted most outstanding professor by the graduating class of GGU Law six times, and most recently this year again. So that's what we call running the table of excellence in the legal academy, which is amazing. We will talk about all of that and more in a moment. But first, Professor Neitz, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am a longtime listener of this podcast, and I'm really excited to be here today. 
Awesome. I'm so glad that the stars aligned so that we could have this conversation. And I think it's so timely for so many reasons, but you know, you are living, I mean, you had me at social good, you had me at blockchain and certainly law. What brought me into the space was certainly, I didn't know what to make of it four or five years ago, but I knew that I wanted to empower the next wave of lawyers to show up for technologists and and others who are working in the space to really get this right. And so I took that part very seriously. Then I fell down the rabbit hole and the rest is history. So before we get into more about what the center does, what the vision is and, and where you see your work going, talk about your own rabbit hole moment generally, and then certainly to crypto law and crypto education in particular. Sure. So my story begins uh, at the end of 2017 at a family dinner when my brother, who uh, is a serial entrepreneur, started talking to the family about his latest company. And he was starting a company in the blockchain space. And no one understood what blockchain was, but that's (laughs) not unusual for uh, my brother to have trouble explaining his work to the family. (laughs) And, And so one by one, as he started drawing out uh, the Bitcoin, how the Bitcoin protocols worked and the way that blockchain actually operates on a napkin at the table, one by one, people got up and left. Uh, and I, <laughs> I didn't expect that. I didn't expect you to say that. I thought they were going to yeah, one by one no, fall into it. <laughs> no, I was the only one at the table that was still sitting there. And I got really intrigued by this idea of a decentralized technology and how that might be able to operate within a legal framework and a regulatory framework. And so I looked around and tried to figure out if I could teach a seminar in early 2018 on this topic. And there just wasn't enough established law for me to go to my associate dean and say, give me two units to be able to teach this course. Right. And so I spent 2018 going down that rabbit hole you mentioned and, and going to conferences in the Bay Area and meeting people and learning and studying and writing. I had written a lot about ethics before I went down that rabbit hole. So I really was interested in the way that we're going to be able to have an ethical framework as well as a regulatory framework around a decentralized technology. And then in 2019, I uh, was appointed to advise the California Blockchain Working Group, part of a group advising the California legislature on the opportunities and the challenges that the state would face as blockchain technology is emerging And that's when I was able to go to my associate dean and say, I'd love to teach this course. I know that I can fill two units with it. And so I started teaching in uh, early 2020, January of 2020 is when I taught the first class. Mm -hmm. And so I'm now three years into teaching. And as you know, well, it requires a lot of pivoting to teach blockchain law in a way that's not true for bar courses. Right. Um, I'm always coming up with something new. Uh, You know, last year it was, what is an NFT? So we changed the (laughs) syllabus around with that. And this year it's how do DAOs operate and what are the regulatory schemes they operate within? Um, So it's really fun because I'm always learning. Yeah, I really feel like I've reinvented myself. And when I think of my own origin story in terms of teaching in this area, it was Leveraging my my existing expertise and finding some intersection there, right? So as an intellectual property lawyer, and, and at the time, people were also asking me questions about how to perhaps monetize decentralized applications that may exist on top of the Ethereum virtual machine, for example, and the role that open source software plays at the layer one level in terms of interoperability. But at some point in time, 
folks are going to find out a way to monetize it. I love community and, and I, I know that this space is community driven, but at a certain point, it exists in this current space of competition and kind of, you know, carving out one space in order to monetize. Was that even possible? How, how, how would that look and, and what would that mean? And so the intellectual property issues generally copyright in particular were interesting. And of course, then I started writing about non-fungible tokens kind of before this was really like, it was at the time where crypto kitties was a thing. And, and I, I used that and the sensational focus on crypto kitties and kind of bringing Ethereum to a virtual hall, not for cute, adorable digital cats, I suppose. Right. But what does that mean for, for copyright protection and creation? And, and so I could find my lane based on my existing expertise and then naturally trying to create a, a survey course in the space, I had to learn a little bit about a lot in order to give them a, a solid foundation. Did you find the same where you had a level of expertise in one area, but you had to learn a little about a lot initially in order to really make sense of the space? Yes, I now know more about copyright than I ever knew because <laughs> yes. of teaching that class. Um, but I have a very strange teaching package. I, I worked at Morrison and Forrester and the Legal Aid Society before coming to law school. Mm. So I also teach business associations and poverty law. And so I, I think that's what made it fun is that I've been teaching the same securities laws since 2006. We as a, the legal academy has been teaching those laws since 1933 and 34. Right. And the idea of being in a space where we can take what we've learned from those existing expertise areas and build a new, new laws and a new regulatory scheme that will fit the modern society was really attractive to me. It was a really big part of why I was so excited to advise regulators about it. Absolutely. So then, so you jump into the space and you conceive of this idea of the center. Talk to us about the origins of the center and, and moving from teaching a course and, and informing it, obviously, with all the other disciplines in which you teach to deciding, yeah, I'm going to throw on my director's cap and do this thing. It's going to be this amazing center. It's going to be funded. Bada bing, bada boom. How does like, you know, how, how do you go from the, the origin of that idea to the, to the fruition of this amazing center? Well, thanks. It's a it's actually kind of a straight line. Um, when I was in uh, the regulatory meetings, there was a lot of talk about making sure the report that we wrote was in layperson terms so that you wouldn't have to be a regulator or a lawyer or a tech person to understand it. And what I thought was so exciting about that working group, in addition to meeting so many lawmakers, is that we were looking at very unsexy use cases, right? right? Like, let's try to put the state archives on a blockchain. Right. <laughs> like, you're not, It's not going to be on the front page of, of any major media. And ways that we could use certificate programs to try to really bring in traditionally disenfranchised populations into a space that could provide job opportunities to so many people who might have felt shut out of big tech. Right. Um, and I just didn't see a lot of that after our report came out in the media narratives. You know, it was very negative, as I don't need to tell you, that it, there's a lot of fear around this new technology, right. which has always been true for all. I mean, it was true with the railroads, right? It's true for everything. But what I realized, especially it was last summer when I, I was listening to what was going on in Congress and realized there's nothing in here around ways that this technology can be used for social good. Mm. None of the unsexy use cases we talked about in our working group are being discussed in mainstream media anywhere. 
right? And right. this is a whole area of this technology that's just being ignored. And so I started thinking that the regulators and the lawmakers would view this differently if they had a 360 degree view of what this technology could do. Right. But unfortunately, all they're hearing are either negative things or risky things or something that could endanger public protection. And so unless we can offer a more balanced view to lawmakers, they're going to regulate assuming that this is risky and that they need to have, you know, of course, public protection is critically important, but there is a balance with innovation that should be considered. And so so that's where I came up with the idea for this center. And then I applied to the Algorand Foundation, who got back to me very quickly with uh, approval for a grant, mm. uh, which was really exciting that they were so forward thinking that they saw that this could actually become a reality. And so uh, so here I am at Golden Gate University, where I've been for over 15 years. Um, we're a, an extremely diverse university by every measure. And we are really excited. The university is excited about building a center here that would connect our location in downtown San Francisco and kind of the, we're really at the hub of the tech industry with the idea that we should be leveraging new technologies to benefit society and not just to monetize for the select few who are able to do it. Absolutely. So that's how it, how it came about was thanks you, by the way, to the Algorand Foundation. I'm talking to a couple of other foundations about expanding our educational programs beyond just a law school campus. It's critically important. I, I love so much of that. And I love the pillars on which you are building the center too, that really get to the heart of what you just mentioned, obviously education, but also community you mentioned, you know, a bit earlier about how important community is to a decentralized space. But for community, there'd be no coiner token that takes off. There'd be no DAO or DeFi project that was worth its weight in in Satoshis, uh, unless there was a community-driven focus, right? But then also the research and policy, which is critically important as we think of the legislative and the regulatory framework within which this nascent technology is developing, right? So this idea or the focus on like a cohesive approach to training lawyers and lawmakers among other stakeholders in the space is ultimately going to be so beneficial to the space. Have you had any reluctance on the part of lawmakers, regulators? I know it's 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 relatively new, but you had to do a lot of groundwork. The, the fact that your doors are open two months ago does not mean that's when you started, right? So you had to, <laughs> Very true. Right? You had to engage in those conversations. So what was the process of even getting others who are skeptical at best to engage in, in this conversation? Well, what surprised me is that regulators are very excited and lawmakers. So I've talked to folks in Congress. I've talked to state Senate offices. Um, I'm, I've worked with the California agency. We have a California has an office of financial tech innovation that reached out almost immediately. Mm. Our, the deputy commissioner there is one of our alums. Next week, I'm doing a training for the executive staff of the California uh, State Controller's Office. Mm. And these are folks, these agencies, as I'm two months into this, I'm realizing are, are a lot of the ones making the real policy decisions, right. but they're not in the news anywhere. You're not going to hear, they're not going to be, you know, having their hearings televised or anything like that. Right. And what I'm finding is that folks are really excited to learn from a neutral source. So what we can offer to government agencies and lawmakers is a, a free training that's not biased in any way. Right. I am never going to tell them to not regulate. 
right? I'm a lawyer. I was a poverty lawyer. Like we need to be considerate of public protection. But I'm also going to tell them, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Right. And you risk throwing out a technology that could have real benefits for members of society, as I said, who have traditionally been excluded, if you're so focused on public protection that you don't allow people to innovate. One of the funny parts of this is that I was ready to do, uh, for all of these offices, I'm ready to do a, a very kind of, you know, really drilling deep type of training, really focused on whatever they need us to focus on. Right. Uh, and instead, I'm being asked to do uh, Blockchain 101. Right. Just, I'm doing a Blockchain 101 um, next week for our campus community. And and what folks need to know is, what is it? Right. right. So they've asked me to cover what instead of like, here are all the areas we're exploring and could you, it's more, what is blockchain, right? What are decentralized technologies and how can we use them? Mm. And that's, so I feel that I'm on a, the first round of trainings with a lot of these agencies. That's not true for all. You know, I met with the CFTC. They're doing a really interesting white paper and, and they're pretty far advanced in their thinking. Mm. Um, but it, but for, for a lot of the local and state agencies who are very eager to learn about this, we need to begin at the beginning. Absolutely. And the next training will be, okay, let's think about what your office does and how we can tailor this technology. And here are some use cases that would be helpful to you. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. If you've tried to figure out crypto, DeFi, and NFTs on your own on YouTube University or Podcast College, and all you have to show for it are a lot of questions, but little if any forward progress, I invite you to visit AdvantageEvans.com to get the answers you've been searching for about how to buy, store, and trade crypto and NFTs and to access DeFi safely, legally, and competently. Advantage Evans Academy offers everything from full-service VIP onboarding to prop-guided on-demand and cohort-based courses, as well as an engaging, informative, and supportive membership club, AE Explore Live, for as little as just $1 a day. This club is for you if you want to learn from well-respected crypto education experts like me, transform your relationship with money, generate wealth in the new digital cash economy, create digital ownership streams that lead to generational wealth, learn to vet, buy, store, trade, earn, and sell cryptocurrencies, engage in DeFi to lend and leverage your crypto, create, buy, and trade creative and collectible NFTs, and network with other crypto-curious enthusiasts in an inclusive environment. You'll gain all of that and more in a wonderful community of like-minded, lifelong learners ready to get in and to win. If that sounds like you, join us. 
Visit AdvantageEvans.com to get immediate access to the resources you need and deserve. That's AdvantageEvans.com. Let's go and let's grow. And now, back to the conversation. I uh, think of some of the conversations I've had with the Pennsylvania Commonwealth legislators, uh, Napoleon Nelson, actually quite savvy and sophisticated because he's a technologist, but wanted to have a series of conversations to help educate his constituents and also his colleagues. And so that has actually been very fun. And I would spend a million hours preparing for the granularity that we never quite get to because, and I think we do ourselves a disservice, quite frankly, as educators in the space by wanting to explain everything that's under the hood mm-hmm. when the only reason I even looked under the hood was that I found something that made me curious about asking the next question. And so I just, you know, I take a, a wider view to talk about, just as you mentioned, what are the possibilities for it? What is this idea of a distributed ledger of transactions and balances, kind of like a group text. Like we could get really, really, you don't want to overstate things that or take uh, for granted or make assumptions about what people know, but you'll learn the next thing when you're ready to learn the next thing. But if you, you know, if people shut down and leave the dinner table because they can't figure out what's going on that napkin, you've lost them, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. And I, I mean, we had almost 200 people at the tr- first training I did Amazing. for the Office of Financial Tech Innovations, the most they'd ever had for a, a voluntary training. And, you know, you're exactly right. Everybody in that training is going to find something that intrigues them, hopefully. Right. And, and that will get them to move a little bit further. Um, I think having a community space, which is why community is one of our important things, where people can come together and really ask questions that they may not feel comfortable asking in other spaces right. is going to be very important as well. I mean, we're all students here. And so feeling that you can ask those questions, I think, is important. And the research and policy part really has to do with helping government agencies to recognize that socially beneficial applications are happening and that this is not a theoretical conversation. I thought the Government Accountability Office report that you, Professor Evans, advised on did a really wonderful job of showing us how you can break this down, you know, using figures and graphs and layperson terms so that people understand it. And they also really encouraged education and for policymakers to get behind education, which I thought was a really important part of that report. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to to weigh in. And I love that they just brought a bunch of folks around the table to come at this particular report from our area of expertise, but to really focus on what are the most prescient legal and regulatory issues. But the other side of it is what what's the power and the promise, but also mm-hmm. what are the potential pitfalls? And so I approach it in, in the similar way that you do. I want people to be educated and with informed decision-making, certainly for segments of the population that are systemically disenfranchised as well. We talk about underbanked and unbanked. I focus mm-hmm. a lot of my speaking and writing and teaching and thinking around Black and Brown communities and the queer community, women. What is it that will keep those who have tended to be systemically disenfranchised, what will empower them in the space? But the biggest gatekeeper right now is 
education in terms of participation on all, all fronts. And coming back to this idea of the legislative and regulatory environment, what are some of the most important issues that you want to impress upon legislators and, and regulators uh, in the space that that's appropriately calibrating the promise with the pitfall to make sure that we have the proper environment for the innovation to grow and for people, uh, all people to be supported and, and empowered in, in this space? That's a great question. I think my number one thing that I would ask of policymakers is to be educated before you're regulating. Mm. I feel like too much to ask, right? Not to, not to do anything until you fully understand the issues. And if you don't understand them, then reach out. I mean, there are law professors around the country who are teaching this course. Our center is offering trainings to whomever would be interested on this. Uh, and and I think the I think they need to pull out of silos. I think it's mm. we're all working in silos, and the pandemic did not help, right? So, right. so last week I I did a joint workshop for my class with a professor at SF State, who is an information technology professor who sent her students out to interview artists, her college students, to interview artists about what are the barriers you face to NFTs, mm. and they expected to receive technical barriers, like to hear that. We're, we don't understand how to do it. Instead, they got a lot of legal barriers, right? A lot of copyright concerns. Right. So it would be really helpful for policymakers to hear from these artists. So these were artists from underprivileged communities. Ask them, is this technology something you might want to do? And if so, where are the barriers? And then we right. can... We can legislate around those, being very careful about government applications and making sure that you understand the unintended, potential unintended consequences, I think is important. And I would be remiss if I did not push ethics and mm. fairness and equity. Um, the California Blockchain Working Group was the first working group in any state to consider ethics at the early stages of technology. Wow. But let's remember as we're legislating and trying to trying to get through that tension of public protection and innovation, what else could we be adding? How else could we make this a more inclusive space, not just the industry, but also the way that we're using these applications? And that's really something that I think I'm hoping that policymakers would focus on. I will give them some credit in the sense that this space is developing so quickly that the idea, when, you know, when I was interviewing people in 2019, everybody was saying, please have uniformity. California, right. please work with New York, you know, work with Wyoming, work with Texas, work with these different states to try to give us a uniform system so that in-house counsel does not have to hire 50 people for 50 states, right? right. And instead, what's happened is it's been a real race, right? And so the, the state, I've been asked by regulators, like, is there any chance that we could cooperate with another state? And I said, there's always a chance you could cooperate. But the question <laughs> right. is, like, Wyoming is not going to slow down so California can catch up, right? Right. And, um, and so it's going to be, let's get interagency cooperation at the federal level. That's what I'm asking for. Um, that feels like a much more achievable goal than mm -hmm. uniformity across states. But at least if we had a clear federal framework we would be able to do so much uh, in terms of attracting talent, retaining talent, and making sure this is an inclusive space. Really, really important. The, the work is so important. I'm so glad that you are, are doing this and bringing all of the various constituencies to the table uh, to operate from the same source of information, 
maybe a single source of truth. I don't know. I've heard something <laughs> like that before. One uh, additional thing I wanted to ask you about is there's a decided and persistent anti-social good narrative around the technology. Obviously, as a matter of, of environment, and I don't poo-poo any of this, but I think it's just a strong and persistent narrative and this counter-narrative to the idea of social good. When if you, you know, reading the white paper, if you're gonna walk out on that, the Satoshi white paper really is grounded in social good. You know, I don't have to search for utility and social good because that was the origin even before digital money before that. But what is your answer to that or as the as you focus and develop the uh, various educational tools to highlight some of the social good? What, what are some of those issues and areas of utility that you that you must talk about? So I, I was told early on by a law professor, I think you're going to find it's just blockchain for social bad. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> this is a very educated person who's telling me this, right? Um, right. And so you're absolutely right that the, the narrative is very negative. And so what we're trying to do is introduce policymakers, students, lawyers, members of the community. I'm hoping to expand to community colleges and train professors there, um, really try to to introduce them to the fact that there are these use cases already being developed. So you mentioned environmental uh, concerns and sustainability concerns. So we profiled a company in our Tuesday Project Spotlight posts uh, called Veritree that is using blockchain to ensure that people who are doing conservation efforts like tree planting efforts, that money is actually going where it's supposed to go. Right. The one that folks always talk about, of course, are the, the digital identity applications in refugee camps and international refugee camps and the ways in which that has made things easier for them. Um, but I had a federal legislative aide say to me, all I hear about are social good, social good, and then there's nothing that actually is working. Hmm. And so there's another example of like, we need to educate, right? right? We need to be profiling. We're, we're doing another one tomorrow. We're doing this every Tuesday. We're profiling some are late stage startups, right? That are just getting going or early, even earlier stage startups to show the creative applications that are being developed. They're right. not all going to work, right? But that's okay. The, the spirit in the entrepreneurial community and decentralized technology is to try to make the world a better place to be. And so I think that if folks see that spirit, they will understand that this is not a get rich quick scheme. I mean, of course you're going to have fraud. Of course you're going to have get rich quick schemes. Of right. course people are going to hack and steal and all of that. But the truth is that the, there's a larger kind of more silent opportunity happening in this space that's not getting airtime around ways that you're going to be able you know, to improve the climate. For example, Klimadao is doing really exciting stuff related to um, carbon credits, but I haven't read about Klimadao anywhere, right? right? And so, so that's what we're trying to do is to bring those sorts of projects up front and kind of sprinkle some of that throughout the trainings that we're doing so that people know that there are entrepreneurs working to, to create these socially beneficial applications. I'm really excited about that. It is what the space needs now. Again, neither you nor I have a dog in the fight per se, except that we want people to engage in the technology and be curious and to be supported by 
the proper and right information, just just the just the facts. What you yes. do with it is another matter altogether. But if we're operating from at least this is the baseline for education for opportunity. And we have some work to do to ensure that it works in the way that it should. But I think we have an amazing opportunity with this technology to do some of the things we thought were probably going to be possible in the Web 2.0 world. But we've seen the reality of the, the decided focus on silos and centralized power, quite frankly, that often is more powerful than individual governments, which is not at all what the conversation was leading into Web 2.0. We have an opportunity with this technology, and I want to make sure that we get this right. And so with great educators and thought leaders like you in the space, I think we're well on our way. Please tell folks how they can learn about more about you and your work and certainly about the center. Yes. So we are the only blockchain law for social good center in the United States right now. So you just have to Google that and you'll <laughs> find us. <laughs> I'm also, uh, I'm on Twitter as Prof M Neitz, and this is Nancy E-I-T-Z at, uh, on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I welcome folks to find us. Our center also, uh, the BL4SG Center and at Bchain Law SG on Twitter and LinkedIn. So um, we're we're definitely around. We are we being me and and a few students and my <laughs> part time associate director right now. But um, we're really hoping to expand and try to get this this training out because the the socially beneficial aspects of Web three are not going to happen without mass adoption. Right. And mass adoption is not going to happen without education. Well said. We will leave it there. Thank you so much, Professor Neitz, for this time. This is the first, but not the last. And I will. See you over on Twitter very, very soon so we can continue the conversation. And it's a joy to be in this space with you. And I look forward to the future because of you. Thanks so much. This is so fun. And thanks for all that you're doing to Professor Evans to really spread the word. Many thanks to Professor Neitz for sharing her work and vision in highlighting the beneficial aspects of social good in the crypto ecosystem to counter and bring balanced perspective to the persistent narrative of social ills associated with cryptocurrencies, NFTs, DAOs, and DeFi. The center is grounded in three essential pillars of education, community, and research and policy. And the center's mission is to offer the first cohesive approach to training lawyers, lawmakers, and others about the numerous socially beneficial use cases of blockchain technology. Of course, legislators and regulators are an essential part of the discussion about the legal and regulatory framework within which this technology and these assets continue to mature. The blockchain ecosystem might be decentralized by removing traditional gatekeepers, but the new gatekeeper is really education. And that's why Professor Neitz's work and the Blockchain Law for Social Good Center is so very necessary and really important to empower the next wave of lawyers, legislators and regulators to make well-informed decisions about the future of work and wealth and creativity and beyond. Before we sign off, please take a moment to like, comment, and share this episode and this podcast with your networks. Follow me on social media and let me know what topics you'd like to hear more of and who you want to hear from. All right, that's all for this episode. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. 
This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.